This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we're talking with Jackie Bannon, who's one of the proprietors or cooperators at the Bowling Club restaurant, where you can get a bring a bowl and get a quite a good meal for four dollars or as much as you can afford. And you can uh, podcast this by going to aor.org.nz, then going to podcasting going to community or chaos. Jackie, could you tell us a bit about the history of the bowling club restaurant or eatery? Yeah, of course. So my partner Liam and I started out the business actually in a food caravan and we started it um, two Matarikis ago. So June 24th, it was like 2022. And the idea started probably... Um, about a year before then, actually, Liam and I were working in food together, but a different style. It was fine dining. And we were serving a lot of people at once. So it would be like 300 meals at a time um, or like in an evening, but like 10 different courses. So it was a very different style. And I think that started the idea of like, oh, we could really serve a lot of people good food. Um, but something about that felt felt not very fulfilling because um, the same types of people would always come to fine dining meals. It's very um, segregated by class who can afford what. And so that kind of started this idea of like, maybe we should work with food and do this cheap food project is what we would talk about. And I think we just talked on and on about it, on and off about it for about a year. Um, someone else who was an inspiration was Jayma, who used to run the um, $2 lunches at uni that ended being $4, but she worked that for 20 years and Liam had volunteered with her as well. Um, and she's all about just bringing food and nourishment to people at an affordable price. Uh, she was um, amazing. Yeah, she is amazing. She still pops by all the time and um, she'll just hop behind the bar and serve herself up some food. And it's kind of funny because our team has grown a lot over the past eight months. So some of the servers don't, don't actually know Jama well and there's kind of this random kind lady who just pops in and helps herself and it's really nice she's like a a very uh, inspirational figure and very important in this whole concept because she kind of shows that it's possible 
Your patronage um, would be so quite yeah. much wider than the university, because, probably because of your location, wouldn't it? Yeah, so it's a lot different than the uni um, because our main like target audience is families. So um, when we started at the food truck, we would serve on average around 200 to 300 people each night. And at that time, it was just Liam and I, and then a friend would help serve the food at the food truck um, just to try to keep it more efficient. But it was really difficult because this whole business model relies on um, like large quantities and lots of people coming. And a food truck doesn't really suit that because you have such limited space and you have to cart everything around. And it was actually like just way too much work. So then we found this lease in Caversham and we started, I guess, what we call an eatery just because restaurant sounds a bit too fancy. <laughs> um, and we started an eatery here in February, end of February. Um, and when we started, there was Liam and me and uh, one woman, Ash, who works full time here. She makes all the desserts and then a couple of people serving with us. And JMO actually helped us start a lot of things and had a lot of great ideas. And now it's grown exponentially. Um, when we opened the first night, we had like outfitted this kitchen here to feed 600 people. We opened and that first night, 600 people came. So it was a bit scary because we had like reached our max immediately. We felt a little bit overwhelmed. And so we had to adapt really quickly, just um, trying to make things more efficient and getting a team. So now there's a team of actually 16 of us a lot of like quite casual shifts for people um, who can come serve the food. Um, and there's actually only Ash is still the only person who works full time along with Liam and I. What do the volunteers so, do? Well, actually, nobody's a volunteer. Everybody's paid. Okay. Um, what do they do? Yeah. So usually the bulk majority of our staff come and serve food. So in the kitchen, which is like right now, so it's Liam, Ash, and I. So Ash makes desserts. Liam kind of leads the kitchen. I help out as a kitchen hand wherever. And then also Gail, who chops all the veggies. Well, we don't hand chop things. We put them through a slicer because you sometimes use like the meal we're serving today is like 200 kilos of vegetables in it. So you simply can't hand chop that many. It would take far too long. <laughs> um, so you put everything through a slicer. So Gail does that. And then the rest of the team, everyone else is servers works as servers so they come in we open actually only three days a week for four and a half hours at a time and when we're open it's very high intensity um because we just serve the food as fast as we can basically so we open at 3 30 and we have most of the food prepared or in a system where it's really fast to prepare um so you like make rice as you go in the oven because it's also a steamer but then like the curry is all made before everyone turns up um and Every, all the customers get in a queue and there's two different bars. So you go to the queue and it splits and all the servers just serve everyone's food up and make sure people feel really welcome. That's always what we say is like the most important thing. And um, yeah, that's the main job. And it's, it's quite a high stimulation environment. It's not, it's not an easy job. So yeah, I, can, I, I, I realize working in a kitchen, <laughs> yeah. you have to get things done on time. I mean, anybody can make a well, maybe not anybody, but uh, I know I can make a great meal if I have plenty of time and yeah. know who's coming. But yeah. it, doing it in a restaurant is totally different because of the pressure of time and the amounts. Yeah. And such bulk quantities, it's hard because, like, we, I think we do serve really, well, I know we do serve really good food for people at an affordable price, and that's really important. 
And sometimes it's hard, though, because you're serving, you know, you're making food for a thousand people now. Usually the average is 900. And so you simply can't pay attention to each person's plate, you know, and like feed them individually really well. Um, so it's an interesting concept, I guess. <laughs> Well, I thought your process for making up your mind was quite good. Now, um, what... What do you mean by that, making up... I mean, how you decided to do this. Why? You talked... I mean, it looked like you took... Oh. Uh, you know, a couple of years, really, to get... To just make the decision to move into this kind of work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, what got you concerned about food and its availability to other people? I think um, there's this general feeling, I think, that's becoming more prominent is kind of this, like, scarce feeling or this lack of abundance. Um, and the fact that like there are a lot of really great community services for people um, and a lot of businesses doing really great things and supporting people. I just think there's not enough of them, especially places and community services that make people feel really good and give people agency and kind of in an empowering way. So we try really hard to do that, to create a community service that doesn't feel like a pity thing at all. It's just like a celebration that we can all eat together and it doesn't matter if you if you can pay or you can't pay or, you know, there's no rules like of who belongs here. We try to have, um, make it a space that's accepting and welcome to absolutely anyone. And I think it's special because the problem is, is um, like with, with a lot of businesses, um, it's can kind of divide people in terms of how much money they have because it's all about what you can afford. Yeah. Um, so I think this one's cool because it's quite a diverse group of people who come here. And I think it's really important to like not only provide people food. I think food availability is really difficult right now. And going to the supermarket doesn't necessarily feel good because it's like, you know, how much can you afford? Or like trying to look at veggies and it's just so expensive. Um, and it's a lot of stress on people's daily lives, especially people with big families. And food shouldn't feel that way. It should feel like a celebration. And if we can kind of do this process where we make things in bulk and provide it for an affordable price, I think it does help take some of that stress off. And at least people know they can come here and they know they can get a, get a meal. Um, and like they can trust that and we can trust them. It's a nice community feel to it all. Do most people sit down and eat or, or is it mostly takeaway? Mostly takeaway. There are people who sit down and eat, but a lot of times it's kind of, well, I think of it as like, we're not necessarily like a special occasion type of place. We're more of a, uh, like woven into people's daily routines. So what happens a lot is like one parent will go and, or caretaker or whoever will go pick up a child from school. And then on the way back, they'll stop here and they'll pick up six meals and take them home and eat them between activities or whenever they can. Um, it's rarely that like the entire family will come, although there's quite a few neighbors who often will come and sit down and eat. And a lot of times people who live alone will come eat here and sit down and have a meal. And then usually later in the night when it's more of the young, um, like young adults 
will come and often meet friends here to eat. But I mean, it's not that huge of a place. I think we have maybe like 40 seats max. So you just, we don't have enough space for everyone. I wish we could. I wish we could have giant tables and everyone could just sit and eat together, but it's not really practical given the demands of life and people's schedules. <laughs> How do you find um, it? Do you have to pay rent or how do you, how do you? Yeah. Yep. I pay rent. We really operate as any other business. Yeah. We pay rent, we pay GST, we pay all the, you know, insurance and rates, all the things. <laughs> do you have a good relationship with your landlord? Yeah, I would say so. He doesn't live in Dunedin, actually. He lives in Auckland. Um, so we see him every once in a while and Yeah. Say so it's a good relationship. He's happy for us to cover the building in art and kind of make it our own. So I feel like that's really special. Well, that, that makes some kind of commitment from him, which probably feels good. Yeah. Where did you, not everybody has the philosophy you have about food and its availability and the willingness to accept that some people can't afford food. They certainly can't afford eating out. How did you mm. come to this? How did we come to the philosophy? Yeah, and the knowledge. The I mean, most people, we turn our heads away and we don't uh, ex really accept there's a problem. Mm. And I think some people do accept there's a problem, but not everybody does. How did you get there? I think for me personally, it's, I have spent a lot of time thinking about how the most important thing to me is that people feel like they have agency in their lives. Like that's, I think through like travel and living in places that are like, I spent a few years living in Morocco in a really rural area. And um, it's, it wasn't the fact that people are living in poverty. That was that hard to see. It was the fact that people don't have agency and they can't make decisions for themselves. So I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about how can you give people agency um, in whatever situation. And I think food is a really cool way to do that. Um, there's like a lot of areas that people um, like a lot of different aspects of well-being that I think we could focus on. Um, and like generally the bowling club, like it is about food. Like, you know, we use food, but food is kind of like the tool to bring people together. And it's the tool to create this sense of community and just kind of prove a point that like things can look different. Like we don't have to just accept that food is really expensive and accept that like maybe the government isn't going to do what we want or whatever. Um, and always like using the word, like we're waiting, like why don't they do this? Or like always using the word they or them, like as if someone else should change these things and you end up just waiting around for so long and it's not going to happen. So I think it's worth it to just give it a go. Um, and like Liam is the same way, my partner too. He's it's both of us who are really like have thought a lot about this. Um, but it's like, how can you empower the community to make change for themselves? And I think that's what we try to do. So, and it, it works so far. I mean, we haven't been open for that long, but it seems to be working really well. And people seem to want that community feel it's not really about the it is about the food but sometimes one time we took a survey and it was like why do you come here is it 
one of the options was like community spirit or location or convenience or um, yum, like food was an option. But, and a lot of people said, like most everyone said yum food, but the other biggest one was community spirit or community feel. Um, so I think that people really want to be able to support each other. It's just that sometimes we ask too much of people. Um, like the ways of supporting each other are quite difficult. Or here it's like you can come and you can buy a meal and maybe give an extra dollar and you spend five dollars and that dollar goes quite a long way because someone else eats off that dollar really. Um, and it's just can be a part of your daily life and it's like mutually beneficial for a lot of people, including like our staff. Everyone gets paid. I think it's really nice because it can be more sustainable. You're not relying on the goodwill of people. Um, so I guess there's a lot of things behind this philosophy, but the main thing, the main drive is that I'd, I'd like to see, um, we would like to show that things can be done differently, that we don't just have to wait for them to change. Because they probably won't. People working here uh, enjoy it mostly. Yeah, I think like a lot of um, a lot of people. It's their first job. There's like quite a few high schoolers who are great, and they really enjoy it. And I think all their friends want the job with them now too because they talk highly of it. And then there's quite a few people who have like um, there's a few people in the who have worked plenty of jobs and are middle aged, and they always say that they haven't had a job like this before because it's so supportive. Um, and like, we have a lot to learn. I'm not saying we're like, we don't, we're not, we're not where we want to be yet. Um, but I think we do create a really nice environment for people to work in. We try hard to keep the team spirit alive and um, just have like really honest and open communication with everyone. And, you know, it's nice to feel like you're, working and also providing a good service for people at the same time and you get paid which is great because you you know we all need to be rewarded for the in a monetary way to live for the work that we provide and also it's work that you know has meaning and kind of connects you in a deeper way to the community all the people on the team develop relationships with different customers because most people are regulars who come come back you know you know three days a week or whatever uh, maybe some people are just once a week, but still you see them regularly and you develop a relationship and with the kids and it's quite cool. It makes you feel really connected in a wider way, which is important. Did you choose Kevisham because it's location where you've got Kevisham and then you've got South Dunedin? Yeah, yeah, that and just a bit of luck, I guess. Um, we So we had the caravan based in South Dunedin. Actually, the South Indian Community Network, which is a really great organization, let us park the caravan outside their community rooms and then people would eat inside. So we wanted to stay near there because we knew it worked there. And we know that in South Dunedin, it's kind of in the center of Dunedin in a weird way. Like, yeah. you know, like there's Mosgill and North Dunedin and out on the peninsula. And like, it's easy to pass through for a lot of different types of people. Um so we were looking for leases around South D and we found here in Cavisham and it felt even better because it's more of in like a neighborhood. And so it feels really community based because especially like there's quite a few of our immediate neighbors who come over with their families and kids every single day we're open for dinner. And it just feels like we're the, the kitchen on the street, but any, you know, people can just come and use it like 
it's like having family over and it's like an extension of their home or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to play a song and then we come back and talk for a while longer then maybe I'll play another song. Awesome. One grain of sand One grain of sand In all the world One grain of sand One little boy One little girl One grain of sand One drop of water In the deep blue sea One grain of sand One little you One little me One grain of sand One grain of sand In all the world One grain of sand One little boy One little girl One grain of sand One drop of water In the deep blue sea One grain of sand One little you One little me One grain of sand One little star in the lonely blue One grain of sand One little me One little you I love you so I love you so, I love you so, I love you so, more than you'll ever, ever, ever know, one grain. of sand that was Odetta One Grain of Sand and I think it's about things starting small and the importance of life 
We're talking with Jackie Bannum about the Bowling Club restaurant, which is about food and community. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcasting, going to community or chaos. Jackie, how do have you do you make time for yourselves so you can do this long term? Um, so we only operate three days a week right now because actually you do a prep day. So our prep day was yesterday on Monday and there's a lot of like business admin and meeting with people and stuff. And then we were operating Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday and they're really long days. We start cooking at eight 30 and you need all that time to have everything ready by three 30 and open the doors for everyone. And then by the time you clean up, we try to get out by 9 PM, but it's quite a long day. Um, so and it takes quite a toll there's just lots of engagement with people it's quite an active job um so that's why we only do it a few days so that we can take care of ourselves on the weekend and rest and actually just a few weeks ago we started taking nights off which is really nice so ashley and i who all work full-time we each take one night of the food service off because that's the most intense part of the job um because that's what we always think about is like we want to we want to do this for a long time. We really hope that we can. And so now for a while, it was the question we are always asking ourselves when we're growing the business is like, how can we do this better? How can we make this more efficient or whatever questions like that? Now the question we always ask is how can we make this easier on ourselves? And it's really important and feels really special to be in a place that we can think like that. We can trust that this business will continue to work and the com community will continue to engage with it that's what it really relies on and we can take care of ourselves so we can keep doing it what does food security mean is it an issue for the people in Dunedin uh, I believe that food security means not having to worry about food um, like not having to worry about how you're going to eat or what you're going to eat and what you can afford just knowing that you can you can eat and you can eat well and I don't mean extravagantly but eating well and um, getting lots of nourishing foods. And it's just not something you really have to think so hard about because, you know, it's just a part of your daily life that happens multiple times a day. And I think it's just ingrained. That means that feels very food secure to me. Uh, I'm not an expert about this at all, um, really, with food security. I feel like based off of how much our business has taken off and how many people come in regularly for free meals. Um, it seems like food security is an issue in Dunedin. I think that's pretty clear just based off of our business. Do you think the community has a responsibility to make sure that food's available to everybody who needs it? Yeah, I, I think so. I would like to say that maybe it's, you know, government responsibility or something, but I think that we just need to take care of each other. Um, and I don't mean that, I don't think people really, I don't really believe in helping people in a way that's like sacrificing. I'm not, I don't know how to explain this right, but like, I believe there's a way we can all help each other and it's really feels good for everyone. Um, and that's what this business is trying to do. Like we're trying to provide a community service, but we're also just trying to live our lives 
and have a livelihood from it as well. And I really like to think of it in that way because I think if you're sacrificing to help, um, it means that it's not going to last forever. Um, so we need sustainable ways in which the community can take care of one another. And I feel like this model is is working and I hope that. I think there's a lot of things that could follow this model. Like, I don't know if there's a way you can mainstream building homes or something and getting materials in bulk and cheaper and sourcing them more creatively. I have no, I don't know anything about building, but point is, is like maybe the this business club model, I mean, this bowling club model could be applied to other businesses. I guess most people have a start business. Many people who start businesses, I should say, I won't say most, they're really bought into the, the system which says you have to grow and you have to be in competition and make as much as possible. Mm. Um, I mean, we know there, there are other ways of doing things. Some some places you have large cooperatives that work quite well, for instance. Yeah. And do you think that people are open to thinking about different ways of doing things? Yeah, definitely. I think it's it feels scary sometimes for some people. It's really just confusing. Um, like in the in the simplest of ways, like. A lot of times when people come here to the bowling club, so you like walk up to the bar and you like put these trays out and you put your containers on the tray and then a server just like talks you through the whole thing and helps you out. But it's interesting because people always come up and they're always like, oh, it's my first time. I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and they're like quite nervous or something. And then you're like, oh, it's fine. Like, it's kind of like Subway, you know, like you're just going to walk down this line with me and you're going to tell me what you want and I'm going to put it in your containers and you'll be on your way. Um, but I think. You go ahead. I was just going to say, I think like just the fact that we're doing something new, people have a, an idea in their head that it's like complicated or um, maybe a little bit of like intimidation or not really understanding how it works feels like it takes more energy sometimes. Um, but I think a lot of it is a mental block. I think like actually when people start doing things differently, it really carries itself a lot of the time. At least that's what it this business has shown me like we weren't really planning. We didn't honestly think it was going to work. That's why we started with the food trucks. It was like pretty low risk. If it failed, it'd be fine. Um, but it, it really just took off. And like it was to the surprise of everyone. Like I was not expecting it. And so I think it shows that people want things to be run differently. And I think it's the same, like other businesses that are doing things in more creative ways. Like you had mentioned yours before at Moray Place. Um, I think that's like, has a lot of traction and people are really attracted to that because they're doing something differently, like a pay-as-you-feel model and stuff like that. Yeah. Do people know what kind of food they're going to, meal they're going to get before they come or can they know? Yep, yep. We post a menu on Sunday evenings on our social media and also on our website. So people can look up the menu and it says what each day has. And we always have a pretty basic macaroni and cheese that people can get. So that's like a consistent. So if you don't think you're going to like the meal, but you know you like the mac, then that's awesome. Um, but actually, it seems, and we always have two desserts and a smoothie that's just like fresh fruit and quite good. Um, but I think a lot of times people will come 
the like regular people who come, which is a big part of the customer base. And they'll turn up and they'll be like, oh, I don't even look what's on. Like, what are you serving? You know, and they just trust that they'll be happy to eat whatever we make, which is a really cool feeling. I love that. It feels like um, just a lot of mutual trust and like openness between each other. And it feels really special. Where do you get your food? Uh, a variety of places. We try to source things as local as possible. Um, so there's a couple of farmers that we work directly with. There's a farmer in Timaru who we get all of our potatoes and black currants from and sometimes cherries and blueberries. There's a farmer in Southland that we get blueberries from. We also get wheat. Um, and then a lot of, and like sometimes depending on what the market price is for everything, we can work with people like Nigel from Omaru Organics. But a lot of the time, like the vast majority, we get our food just from, it's called uh, MG, Market Gardeners, Market Gardens. I'm kind of blanking on the name. Just know it's MG, but it's like the veggie co-op in town. And so farmers are part of this co-op, but they supply all the vegetables there um, and produce, fruit, whatever. And then usually it's places like supermarkets. So like even Countdown and New World and, you know, smaller scale like Veggie Boys and, you know. Um, just green grocers will buy the vegetables from there and it's just like individuals can't go because I think you have to be a business and you have to spend at least $500 a week on vegetables to be a part of a customer of the co-op so that's where we get probably the vast majority of our produce because it's so reliable and usually quite a competitive price and we can't although it'd be really nice to buy like everything organic and stuff it's just what we prioritize is keeping the cost affordable so you have to be quite careful about what you can and can't buy. I suppose. Yeah. Do you think organic food's getting going to get cheaper? Uh, doesn't look like it. <laughs> no, that's too bad in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you, I mean, many people can't really afford to buy organic very often. Hmm. Yeah, it's true. I, I don't think it's going to get a lot cheaper. There's a lot of... Seems like food prices are slowly creeping up and yeah, the the whole system is a bit fragile in New Zealand. Is most of your do you get most of your food in a way that if say if there was an earthquake in Kaikoura, you could still supply people? I guess still supply meals. Yeah. It would you know, I think it would change things, but there's always um, I think we have a, a diverse enough base of suppliers that, like, if anyone, like, something happened, um, of course, you'd, like, feel the effect of that shock, but you would still be able to create food for people and make food for people. Um, but I do think that's the, the hard thing about in New Zealand is, like, I think the economy has changed a lot from my understanding over the last 50 years. So oh, it sure they, has. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not an expert on this either. <laughs> I don't want to uh, say too much. I, but. I'm, I'm a bit like a broken record on that, to be honest. <laughs> Everybody yeah. knows I have my biases. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, an, a story that can kind of like in, show this is there's um the farmer in timaru just south of timaru his name is brent and he used to grow tons and tons of potatoes he would supply um spuds to like 150 or 180 i think 
different fish and chip shops across the South Island. And now, um, since the economy has gone towards like a more capitalist model, like now Brent only supplies to 10 different fish and chip shops because everyone is using the pre-cut frozen chips um, because it's cheaper and more convenient. And so like, I feel like there used to be a lot more smaller suppliers because it was more viable. Like you could run a business easier like that because there's more demand for your products. But now there seems to be few huge suppliers. Um, so it makes us all quite vulnerable sometimes. And efficient well, yeah. chips has got very much more expensive in the last five mm. years. It used to be a cheap meal, but it's no, it doesn't seem to be a cheap meal anymore. And it's not just yeah. because of fish, it's the, ch it's the chips as much as anything. Right, yeah. Yeah, people always talk about it as a, it's a cheap meal, and I always thought that was kind of weird because it's not historically, <laughs> historically, it was. But um, it's an interesting yeah. time, actually, in New Zealand because um, wages, we've become a low-wage economy, but the price of things hasn't gone low. In fact, the price of things have gone up. Anything from electricity to the things you buy in the supermarket are mm -hmm. more expensive than they were 20 years ago. Yet the wages and so on haven't changed much. In fact, they've been kept down pretty pretty regularly. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit concerning, really. Do people talk about this kind of thing when they... Oh, I guess you don't. Like, you get a chance to talk to people much. <laughs> That's Probably a good not. question. No, not a ton, really. But you develop. It's always micro conversations. So you have like a thirty-second conversation, and then you have another thirty-second conversation the next day. But usually, it's not about these types of things. Um, it's just more so about like what's happening in their daily lives. Because I think it's easier to dip in and out of that rather than dive into conversations about the cost of living um i think that on the like outside of just working and serving food to people people are talking about it all the time i mean just walk down the street and probably eavesdrop on someone talking about the cost of living <laughs> seems like a very common conversation right now do you think people are really feeling it do you think people are will feel frustrated if they feel they can't do much about it and yeah. how, the, how their vote doesn't matter Hmm. Well, that, yeah. Is that it's disturbing? Oh, totally. Yeah. Because what are what are we to do? How are we supposed to change things if we don't believe that our say matters? You know, or like we don't feel as if we our say matters for for good reason sometimes, or you know, like I think it, you kind of just accept like, well, this is the way it is. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I'm from the actually and i only i haven't been here for very long we basically moved here and then started the food caravan on a whim so i'm not an expert about new zealand at all but i do know that in the states there's this feeling that's even more intense than here of like just kind of like well it's just the way it is and let's just like live our individual lives and kind of like pretend that everything's like okay because that's how you cope with it and it's a lot more extreme than it is here um but i can feel you can feel a little bit of that happening here too, where it's like, you just don't know what to do. And everyone, a lot of people I think feel it hard to 
you know, have a lot of hope for many things sometimes. And thus, yeah. it's easy to just pretend that yeah. maybe everything's okay or we just can't do anything about it. So we're just going to live. Um, sometimes that's easier. And it's not necessarily anyone's fault to think that way. It's just the the climate is difficult right now. Um, I, and what are you to do? Yeah, you the, have to the climate is difficult right now. Yeah. <laughs> In in physical and social. <laughs> but um, I remember just before the election, they had inland revenue was ordered to do a survey of taxation. You've probably heard about that. And the tax rate for the very wealthy was very low and, and much higher for people on average incomes or less. And mm -hmm. they... Minister of um, Revenue proposed a referendum on um, capital gains tax and wealth tax that would come in after the election. And I think a lot of people felt really hopeful. And then the leader of the party said, no, we're not going to do this for the next six years or so, as long as I'm prime minister. And that, mm. I think that that was a disturbing thing. Yeah. That certain, that, you know, the change is too hard. Right. And so we won't try it. That tells, I think it sends the wrong message to people because I think, yeah. you know, we can have change. We can make a difference, but we have to believe we can make a difference and we need to feel we're being listened to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I totally agree with you. <laughs> the, I think that most people really do feel that uh, things like availability of housing and food is really important. And mm -hmm. I think even people that have food and have housing feel it's important to most people. Mm -hmm. And... In some ways, I think we're still at a fairly, I think people still have hope in New Zealand and think, and that um, they believe to a certain degree that it does matter how they vote and it does, that mm -hmm. uh, change is possible. But you have to, it seems to me it's really important to keep that hope alive. Yeah. Uh, I guess... What you're doing in a way, even though it's not directly political, it's it's hopeful, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's a huge like mission behind the whole whole business is that I think I believe that if um like collaborative communities work, then they'll replicate themselves because people just naturally naturally want to feel a sense of hope and naturally want to be a part of a community that they feel supported by. So I think if you can find ways to introduce them, people are already doing this, you know, in so many different ways. It's not just obviously the bowling club at all. But I think if we all collectively work to create spaces where this can happen, I think they will continue to replicate themselves. And even like on a small level, the amount of people who reach out from all over New Zealand, some people in Australia, one person from the Netherlands, like asking we can have conversations so that they can start something similar in their own 
city is amazing. And we haven't really been going for that long, but I really do believe that these communities can replicate and um, that kind of restores the sense of hope and trust and belief that we can make a difference. And that's really important. Well, I'm going to play another song and then we'll come back. And this song is more about food, I think. Great. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to chow down my vegetables. I love you most of all, my favorite vegetable. That was the Beach Boys singing about vegetables, and that song and the Beach Boys are well before most of your time. And I think it's even a bit early for me, but it's still a great song. And you were talking with uh, Jackie Bannon, the bowling club uh, restaurant and eatery, and we're talking about the valuable of food and the availability of food and how important it is to make it available in a friendly, helpful atmosphere. You can uh, podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast, and then going to community or chaos. Well, Jackie, um, what kinds of food do you personally like best? Can you hear me?
Jackie, can you hear me? Yep, I can. What, okay, what kind of foods do you like best to what, eat yourself? Yeah. Oh, what kind of foods do we sell? Um, it's quite a range, really. So the, we have one main meal of the day, and it's a lot of different cuisines that we make. Um, I guess the similarities are that they're based on raw and unprocessed ingredients to keep the cost low and that everything is made from scratch. So usually we'll have um, like a European style meal one of the days and maybe a more Asian style meal another one of the days and usually some type of curry because people love curry it seems and it's quite a nice thing to make in bulk. So that's what we're serving today. We have a Japanese curry and it's served with basmati rice and we have a this really nice red capsicum kind of salsa-y sauce to go with it for a bit of zing. And then this sesame seed kind of, it's like a sesame and almost like a sticky lemon topping that will go on top as well. So that's what we're, we have today. And we always have desserts. There's two options for dessert. Usually one like is a maybe cake style thing and one's kind of more of like a tart or pie style something. Um, but a lot of times when we're thinking about the menu, we base the menu off of what what vegetables are available um, because we don't actually sell any meat because we simply can't afford it. And also it just doesn't feel good to sell meat in such giant quantities. <laughs> like having a thousand servings of meat would not feel good. <laughs> um, so we usually have like uh, a meal that's, you know, like the, carb that it's based off of is potatoes and then another one will be a bread meal and there'll be a rice meal um maybe like a noodle or like pasta meal yeah and then we just incorporate a lot of vegetables a lot of legumes for protein so like the curry today has tons of yellow split peas snuck into it i don't think most people know that they're consuming so many legumes and the curries and things because you blend them in so people don't know not that we're trying to trick anyone. It's just a nice t texture, really, when it's all blended. Um, yeah. Do you, uh, what do you do with, do you have leftovers? Yeah, that's the hardest part. <laughs> we do, because like I said earlier, we basically have all the food, you know, the main component of the food ready before everyone comes. So you don't know how many people are going to come. Um, so like we'll have, I don't know, maybe it's like over 200 liters, 200, yeah, 200, like 40 liters of curry. And that's enough to serve 900 because that's usually how many people come. But then some days like last week was oddly really slow on both Halloween and then the Wednesday after oh, yeah. and we just had so much food. Um, and it was, it was okay because we ended up. <laughs> Saving the leftovers and serving them the next day, and we actually sold out of all of them, um, which was fine. But it was a bit concerning when, at the end of the night, you're like, "What are we gonna do with like, you know, you can't just hand 300 servings of food to the night shelter. It's far too much." <laughs> um, and sometimes you really can be off by that much. You cook for 900, and um, only 600 people turn up if it's a really slow night like last week. So it's a bit concerning. Um, also, if we kind of know within the first hour and a half if it's going to be a busy or a slow night and you can kind of adjust people's portion sizes. So sometimes people will just get a bit more food. And then when we can, if it's like food safe, we will freeze things and reuse them 
Uh, but we try not to do that because it's honestly kind of a, uh, I don't know, not not the nicest thing to do sometimes is we don't have much freezer space. So, yeah. What's the thing you like about most about the job? I love the connection with people. I love the vibrant feel of it all. Like, it's very rare that when we're open during service that I just take a moment, take it all in. But when I do, it's a really beautiful thing because there's so many different types of people in the queue. And a lot of times when people get to the front of the queue, you think that they've came together because they're chatting away as if they're good friends. And then you realize they just made friends in the queue. So it's a nice connective space. Um, and like, I don't know, lots of kids come around and we'll play in the kids section. There's always bears all over the place, like toy teddy bears, um, which is quite fun and just a bit goofy. There's one young, young kid named Monty who will come quite often and he brings his little bike and will bike through the queue. And there's a little ramp to connect the two rooms. So he'll bike down the ramp and people kind of move out of the way so he can zoom through the queue. And I don't know, it's just a nice environment in terms of how vibrant it is and how people can just be themselves and you can kind of celebrate that and be with people um, just on a day-to-day -day basis. It's nothing really like, it's special because it we're all connecting, but it's not like special in an extravagant way. And that's why I really love it. Do you see doing this really long-term? If you're lucky, I hope so. <laughs> if it keeps working in in the business sense, and if we continue to take care of ourselves, mm -hmm. um, so that we have the energy to keep doing it, there's nothing really. I've considered this a lot of times. Like, if I weren't doing this, what would I rather be doing? And you can romanticize some other stories of dreams and of life you can make up. But at the end of the day, I'm really, I really enjoy doing this. It feels really meaningful to me. And I think as we as we grow and as we create a more secure team and people, lots of people have more types of responsibilities within the business, so we'll open up more spaces to do different types of things within the bowling club, which is really attractive to me too because I really do love serving food and making food for people. I also would like to focus a bit more on how what else we can provide, what other types of spaces within the bowling club could we create for people? And it makes me excited to think about a time when I have more energy to think in those ways. Well, thanks a lot for coming on board. I really appreciate uh, the conversation and I appreciate what you do. And I'm sure the thank community you. does too. So thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me and having good, good chat. <laughs> This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.